Keep in touch with the Wolf Connection podcast on our Instagram handle at the Wolf Connection Pod or email us your questions, comments, and guest ideas to podcast at wolfconnection.org. Thank you for your support and howls to you all. Welcome to the Wolf Connection podcast. I'm your host, John Calvin. All right. So those of you that follow along on the podcast a little bit, just know uh, kind of a little bit of announcement. If you don't follow Ronan Donovan, so Ronan's exhibit uh, at the High Desert Museum from Bend, Oregon, I believe is ending in a few weeks. So just anybody who's uh, wanted to get up to Bend and see that wonderful exhibit, uh, that wolf exhibit, please go ahead and do so uh, before it moves. I think it's staying in Oregon, but no longer in Bend. And our guest today was actually part of the panel on, I believe, opening night of that exhibition there. So he is uh, a wildlife biologist, part of the branch of natural resources for the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. He's also, he was a wildlife technician. He's an environmentalist and a hunter. He does all the things uh, and really, really happy to have him on here with Stephen and I. This is Austin Smith Jr. Austin, really great to meet you. And again, thanks for making the time and and willing to come on with us. Oh, thank you. Yeah, really glad to be a part of this and um, share my story with you guys. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, just go through your, your background. Uh, were you, you know, did you grow up on the reservation? Uh, I, you know, and again, I hope that that question doesn't sound so yeah, you know, no, simple, no, but that, yeah, like, how'd that go? <laughs> that's fine. Yeah. So I'm I'm an enrolled tribal member of the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs. Um, I did grow up on a reservation a majority of my life. I, you know, the res was the place where we were moved to back in the 1800s. Um, so my background is primarily, you know, um, like most native kids around here, we grew up hunting, fishing, hiking, <laughs> and, you know, and only time we're not doing that is probably when we're in school or anyway. Some people actually still get sent off to boarding schools, believe it or not, but they're not the 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 uh, boarding schools from back in the day. They're more or less just schools that are get kids away from the res for a bit and different change. So I never went there. I actually um, graduated high school from Madras Senior High School, um, which Madras is like 17 miles from the res. Um, but, you know, I I started working as a youth technician in 2002. Um, so I knew I wanted to get into natural resources in some aspect. And really, um, it was uh, then I jumped on to a on a crew, <laughs> a bunch of youth workers for natural resources. Uh, they threw us out in the woods and made us clean parks and, you know, all the fun, fun stuff that a technician does, you know, um, pick up trash and um, just go out and assist uh, biologists out on surveys from um, lamprey, fish, um, wildlife, forestry, you name it. So I got really what piqued me um, into wildlife and wildlife management was um, 2002. We did a bighorn sheep reintroduction onto our reservation. And I got to go out and assist the biologists and do inventories. And I thought it was really cool. Kind of, I, I knew what I wanted to do the rest of my life at that point. <clears throat> so did multiple seasons with the um, natural resource program as a youth intern all the way up until 2004. And then at that point, I wanted to go to school. I had a couple of scholarships through the community college and the university here in Oregon State, but I knew it was only for the first year. And I, you know, I school is expensive, but at the same time, there's a lot going on in our country and around the world. So um, like a lot of my 
my um, upbringing is, you know, it's a warrior society. So I knew there was a rite of passage for the warriors, and typically that was joining the military. So that's what I did. I, I joined the Marine Corps in 2004, um, signed up when I was 17. My parents had to sign waivers for me. I graduated a little bit early. So in the springtime, I started doing my workup, and I, I worked all the way up until I left to boot camp in fall of 2004. And so I did multiple deployments through 2004, 2009, um, Operation Iraqi Freedom. And at the same time, still kept in contact with all the biologists and technicians here back home. And so I ended up getting out, separating with the honorable discharge in 2009. In 2010, I actually enrolled at um, the community college here in Central Oregon um, with a focus at in forestry and natural resources. So, you know, that, that part of my life, I was like, like I knew I wanted to do something still in natural resources, but it it really wasn't wildlife at that point. It was like, well, maybe forestry would be cool, you know. I was really just kind of thinking about, you know, would that work out? So actually, I so I came back in as a technician, and lo and behold, we did a mountain goat reintroduction project up in the Cascades. So we actually went with ODFW and captured some uh, mountain goats and the alcorns and delivered them to uh, the Mount Jefferson wilderness and on a reservation. And so then I was hooked again. Right. So that was pretty fun. So that eventually I, I continued my way through school, got my associate's degree. I enrolled at um, Oregon State University Cascades campus, focusing at natural resource management and wildlife. And so I ended up um, graduating in 2015. Um, and then from during that time, I was still doing internships. I was um, jumping back and forth, different jobs, um, doing like um, some fisheries work, some wildlife work, forestry work. Um, so that was pretty fun doing all these projects and at the same time gaining that that um, experience. And a position opened up for a um, for a field wildlife biologist with a tribe. So I. Um, applied for that and got selected and pretty much just uh, threw me right in there. I was a travel member, veteran, have, you know, roughly five years experience and, um, <laughs> you know, I had my degree. So wow. hired me right up. Um, they're like, oh yeah, you, you're right. <laughs> so that was easy for me. So, and then from there, it's kind of sailing to where I'm at now. I um, worked my way up. I am, went from a biologist to a manager over the wildlife range and ag program. And then um, just last year, I was um, promoted again to the uh, general manager for the branch of natural resources, overseeing all the programs here for the tribes. Wow. Yep. I mean, before we get into more wildlife stuff, what is the reservation to you? Like, what is it, uh, what's it like to, to grow up there? Do you have good memories of it? Do you have bad memories of it? What's, what's it like for you? And then also I'm curious how the the rites of passage as it relates to to tribal life how does that how does that translate to military like what's the importance of of joining the military in in the context in which you grew up so i'll start off with the growing up on the reservation so it's it's almost like you know i can relate it to countries i've been to across seas you know i've been to some pretty poor countries and poverty but tight community that's very similar to what the reservation is you know we and you have to understand the history of our tribes and many tribes throughout throughout Oregon and throughout the 
Northwest as the federal government was moving through and let, you know, a lot of uh, private landowners were grabbing land, um, railroads were grabbing land, uh, states were being developed. And so they moved all the tribes onto reservation and it was like the low, you know, most unrealistic place to live because it was all rocks and scab land that wasn't farmable or irrigate, you couldn't irrigate it. So it was all areas. So that's where they, most tribes were moved to were these areas. So it's very rare, you know, of tribes that actually obtain their, their traditional homelands. But for us, we're very resilient. Um, we do come from the big river in Columbia. Um, we're fish people, but we're also hunter gatherers and no very nomadic tribes. So, um, you know, I kind of come from that both sides. My dad's side of family was from the big river. My mom's side was from tributaries and plateau. So these tight-knit communities moved us to the reservation and the community itself, you know, it's really made up of um, a lot of different, um, these three different tribes, the Wasco, Warm Springs, and Paiute. And so we signed the treaty, um, the Waskos and Warm Springs signed the treaty with US government, but at the same time, the Paiutes, they were no very nomadic, still running around, basically prisoners of war when they came to our reservation. And so we grown up around them, you know, it was, a lot of poverty, you know, there's a high percentage of unemployment, um, but we relied on our resources. So we had a big timber industry here back in the, um, I would say like 50s through the 90s, really, um, we we're cutting a lot of board feet. And so that meant a lot of revenue back to the tribe. And so then it, it kind of, you know, like any society, it goes through these um, peaks and drops, right? So that's kind of where we are. We actually developed a uh, um, a mill. We had our own mill at one point that was cutting a lot of board feet, made a lot of revenue. Um, that means uh, dividends back to the tribe. And so they put that into savings. And at the same time, they built a, a giant resort, um, pools and um, recreational areas. And then they build a casino and a hotel. And, you know, we're doing pretty well. Um, and then, of course, you know, the the recessions hit and poverty went, you know, so we're kind of back in that line again, but um, this growing around the community, I felt like I, I knew my, who my best friends were growing up with them. You know, we, we worked locally close. We took care of our aunts, uncles, brothers, you know, a lot of people, a lot of non-tribals would say, Hey, that's my second cousin, third cousin, my great uncle, grand. And as a kid, we always knew them as like our aunts and uncles and cousins. Everyone was a cousin, right? So that's kind of how we were just growing up in that fashion. And then a lot of the the traits that you get from like our elders, we really hold them like their stories. They're, they never write everything down, but it's always stories that were passed on and ways of living, um, even pre pre-contact right? That there's a lot of those stories are still passed down to us. And so that that's our history. That's our knowledge. And that's how it carries us. And it's in the language. So I'm not a fluent speaker, but I speak enough so I could understand. Uh, my five-year-old <laughs> probably knows a lot more of the language than I do, to be honest. Um, but part of that, our language, our teachings, our foods, our resources, that, that kind of go coincides with um, your, your last question about the rite of passage with the warrior society and as a veteran. So, you know, there's back in the day, you know, a lot of the young men, they would test their courage and test their strength when they go through that 
transition from a young boy to a man. Um, they would go out on a war party and typically it was still in horses or, you know, back then there was a lot of slave trading, even amongst the tribes, believe it or not, that's that, that was pretty common, but not the slave trade, like what happened with the Africans. Um, it was more or less just, you know, um, dentured servants, or they would capture Paiutes, Cayuse, or other tribes, Modocs, and they would, um, build them into our tribe and make the tribe bigger and. So there was a lot of that. So um, so part of the wars was like, all right, well, we got raided, say we got raided by the Cayuse tribe or the Modocs or the Paiutes. And so they would go out on the on a war path. And when they came home, they weren't boys anymore. They were young men, regardless if you know they got in a conflict or not, it was still that, you know, that that right um to go out on your own and you came home and you maybe you stole some horses back or you you know, got some cattle or whatever it was, you know, you you came home and then you could wear those feathers or wear that paint on your animal, on your horse. And so it was really, you know, that that was, you know, in that society, as you know, you could probably relate it to Romans and, you know, Vikings and how, you know, they carried on. It was all that warrior society. So for me, I had um, grandpas and uncles that served in all the conflicts even before we were citizens, right? Back in um, World War One, you know, we had family that fought in that conflict. Um, Modoc Wars, they fought in those conflicts as scouts. And then leading up to the, the most recent wars, you know, the World War II and Korean War and then the war on terrorism and all the other conflicts. I've always had someone. So I've had an older brother, older sister that served in the army. And then myself serving in Marine Corps. And now I have, you know, cousins and friends that are doing the same thing. And so it was, you do have a high percentage of Native Americans serving in the military than you do any other uh, other race, I believe. So. Man. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, first thing for me, too, is just thank you for your service, obviously. I mean, I, I come from a military uh, family. Uh, my brother's still in and my, my father still is overseas. So, uh, again you know, the sacrifice you and your family have made, uh, obviously to, to help, uh, keep this country safe is, you know, can't be enough. Thanks there. Was there, cause you, cause you spoke about the, both of your parents side and again, moving to a reservation and having to pick up and, and really relocate to a place that wasn't conducive to, you know, like you say, farming or anything or hunting and gathering. I mean, obviously you can adapt. Did you always have a deep, connection to the land even i mean i know you weren't part of that relocation but was that always something that was instilled uh, in in the knowledge and the and the teachings and the and all the stuff that was passed on to you as a as a child that the land uh, there was a deep connection there or did that you know grow uh you know naturally for you you know when with our our religion or our ways of prayers i guess you call it um, you know, it evolved around the, the first foods that the tribes um, always relied on. And the first foods ha always have an order of how they are came to us in our tales and our legends. And so you, there's some tribes and some tribes here that integrated some of the Christian re um, religion into it. But like there's more to it about the resources, about how um, that connection is to land 
And so the connection is typically in that order is first comes water, right? So water is first. It's the most powerful carved lands. It, it's life, right? But it can also take life. So water and then um, as the water's here, then they, you know, when the earth was being created and the fish and the deer and the elk and the birds were here and they came upon human, which was us. Um, the creator asked, like, all right, who's going to give themselves first to this pitiful, pitiful being, um, right? And the, so the fish came forward first. So they were like, we, we will give our flesh to these humans. And then next came, came the deer, right? And the elk. And then um, the roots and the berries. And eventually they all were in that order. That's how they came to us. And so and it's still it's still that way how we um have those seasons to this day we have those um set seasons of all right first comes the the fish in the springtime and the summer and then you have the berries and the roots and then the deer and the elk and the bears and the lions give themselves so we have an order that and part of that is the the protection of those so you know we, we always take that teaching as a young kid you know you need to protect this this is yours you know it wasn't given given to you to um, mismanage. It was given to you to be taken care of, and if you don't take care of it, it's gonna go away. And so that that's echoed throughout our longhouse. Like um, you you need to protect those resources, and that you know it talks about the water, talks about like in order to have good water, clean water. That means clean runs for fish, and that means nutrition for the animals that depend on it. You know and at a young age, I, I already understood that, you know, they're like this nutrient cycle. Fish go down the ocean, get all these nutrients, bring them up. Bears eat them, go out, eat, scatter them across the land. Berries grow, deer and elk can eat those berries or grass, and then we shoot those. And so it was just going in. So I totally understood that. And it, it, I wasn't the only one, though, too. You know, there's people out there that like loggers that we have or woodcutters, they know that like, well, if we don't cut this wood, it's just going to burn, you know, and we need to also cleanse the land so that more can grow. So they understood that aspect of it. And um, once the federal government got involved and, you know, they, they wanted a certain way. They, so they didn't allow us to burn anymore, like burn huckleberry grounds, root grounds, um, clear these areas out because they're saying, Oh, that's, that, that needs to be protected. I'm like, okay, starting, starting to understand that aspect, but you can protect too much. And yeah, and that gets to where, when I talk about our reservation, it's 643,000 acres that was reserved to us to live on, to be a sovereign nation. But we were also ceded, um, you know, we weren't given anything. We reserved the right to these areas. We already had these rights when Europeans came over and created these laws. So we reserved the 10.2 million acres of our ceded lands. But, you know, those borders were drawn because, you know, we're becoming the last ones as everyone moved west, right? There's already treaties made. So you had like the Nez Perce, the Umatilla, the Yakimas created their treaties and they kind of carved out their lands. And they knew like, well, this is Warm Springs people. This is their area. So they kind of created our eastern border for us. And then we were able to, um, you know, retain our areas of our our fishing areas along the columbia river and then um we wanted to go back down into willamette because that's where a lot of our families and our 
our um, people travel to is Willamette Valley, but they told us, oh, there's too many settlers down there. Of course, that's, if you know the history of the Oregon Trail, that's where everyone went. The east was Oregon Trail went right to Willamette Valley and the different areas. So, so we couldn't retain those areas. So um, they, they drew a line over the crest of the Cascades. And so that drew our western boundary of our ceded lands and our reservation. And then this arbitrary line called the 44th parallel to the south of us, that would be our southern border of our ceded lands. And but also what's strong with our treaty is we were able to obtain what's called usual and custom use stations, which when you hear that, you're like, what, what does that mean? So these are areas at the time the chiefs and the clan leaders um, knew there was other families already out during the treaty signing back in June 25th, 1855. They're like, there's already clans out in these areas, you know, during the season. So I was thinking June, they're probably down in Willamette catching eels or up in the mountains picking berries or down south hunting, you know, antelope. So they knew like, well, I want to still want to preserve their areas and this. And so they call these usual custom use station or areas where we that we go outside of the ceded land boundary to go and hunt, harvest and gather. So they're able to retain those. So we still have that right to this day and it's written to our treaty and the federal governments recognize that and um, the state agencies are still almost there, but <laughs> you know, um, we still, to this day, we still exercise it. And, um, but that's just pretty unique to our tree, but that that's kind of getting back to like that deep connection to the land. Mm. Wow. I mean, yeah, there's so much, yeah, I, I can't even imagine what that's, what that's like to have to have borders made and, and things of that sort. I, I mean, it really goes into a lot of what you, you're saying just about the background and the history, it, I mean, when I was reading up on your, on your bio and just listening to your talk that you gave back in March, you, you really encompass all of these things because it, your, your presentation was not only about the, the land itself, but about how you yourself and, and the tribes are, are managing it. I mean, talking about mule deer, mule deer studies and rangeland management and, wild horses. And you, you mentioned the bighorn sheep reintroduction. This is all really, it seems for the benefit of the land itself, not just to be doing uh, scientific study and, and to bring that information back. Was It just seems like this was such an easy situation for you to fall into, right? Because of your background. Was, did you feel that way? Were you, obviously you said you had four or five years of experience in terms of school, but did you feel really ready for this to to do this type of work and and do all these things that that I just mentioned that that you guys are or that you're doing and you're heading up now? Um, I guess in terms of being ready for it and in that background, I knew that there was a need to protect and preserve resources, but I didn't always have those tools or the the you know the best management practices out there. So that's where leaned on the different agencies you know there's a lot of professors a lot of professionals a lot of studies that go on we've done our own mule deer studies right figured out like what's killing all our deer where they migrate into type of habitat we need to protect or develop um same thing with the rangeland we've um looked at the, the land and but we've relied on so we've gone to like blm um talk to them about their rangeland management, what they're doing with horses and horse management. And then we work pretty closely with uh, Oregon Department of Fish and Wildlife 
on um, some of the, the trend data for mule deer, elk, and other game species, and, um, you know, like really what their studies are. So we kind of coincided with asking the same question, right? So like if, imagine we're doing a, a thesis on, all right, what's going on with mule deer? Why are they all dying all of a sudden within this past hundred years? And, you know, a lot of our thing is it's development, right? It's people and how do they impact that? But at the same time, there's more to it than that. There's climate change, there's change transition ground, there's the fact that maybe we're at the extent of the mule deer, um, uh, the mule deer's territory and where we transition into blacktail habitat and blacktail population. So we have to understand all of that as well. And for me to understand that, you know, I really did look on ODFW. And then of course, with um, endangered species, we, we know that those are indicator species that they can tell you if the habitat, if the forest, if the rangeland, or if the water is is um, doing, you know, if, if they're, they're in the right stance of the, the right um, um, condition for all the other animals. So, you know, kind of like that, the umbrella species that if you mm. ensure that, like say bull trout are in the cold water that's clear and clean, they're going to indicate that, hey, that's good good water for steelhead and chinook and all those. So we use that same thing with like the other endangered species, spotted owls, wolves, and different bats, and you know, even down to the bugs and the, the birds and the bees, right? <laughs> all those things, if they're doing it right, we're doing something right on our management level. And so that's where we leaned on our federal agencies. So U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, they're really strong here. We've worked with Emily and um, John Stephenson, a few other names out there that they've came to the reservation, did um, formal and informal consultation with us when we do these large scale projects, whether it's a timber sale, a road being developed, a, you know, culvert being replaced or any of that sort. And, you know, it's not only with the wildlife service is also with the NOAA and NOAA fisheries on, you know, if we're impacting steelhead ground because there's listed species here on the reservation, or maybe, um, you know, um, we go back to the rangeland, you know, we talk to like some of the um, like OSU extension office or Oregon state college and, you know, they're doing rangeland studies and they can tell you, they send out, interns and uh, grad students and they can do their small studies on our landscape and you know answer some questions so all those tools are out there and you know my job as a tribal member um, and educated it was to bridge that gap because for the longest time it was bia and non-tribals here um, telling the tribal members <laughs> what was best for them right mm -hmm. without any input other than like hey you know you just don't worry about it. we're going to take care of you and there's actually lawsuits that happen in settlements because of that so that's where we're at now is that's why we are um, who self-regulate and we still work with those acronym agencies to this day and it's good relationships sometimes rocky but good yeah so I, I just have some like some basic questions before we get into the wolf stuff about um, kind of how you collaborate with the the federal agencies. I know you're you're you are mentioning how you collaborate with them and how you I think you use the the phrase lean on them. But as a sovereign territory, do you do do you have to follow what the state's doing or what the federal agencies in the area are are doing in terms of populations and and hunting quotas? 
or can you guys make up your your own your own regulations and if you can are there a lot of them that w- that that are different or that don't coincide with with the the surrounding regulations for the the state and BLM land and all those things so with the federal agencies um depending on what type of funding we're getting uh, so like if say we put in for like an ESA grant or a uh, any of that sort to do some treatments we we should we have to abide by some fashion of endangered species act right but we don't always have to you know it depends um but for to be you know a good neighbor we do because we know that hey these are good resources to um indicate on good resources to build around um and so we do so we do that with uh all the endangered species on a reservation we're aware of it when they do migrate through we're aware of it and we try to manage and protect it just like we do you know we've adopted a lot of that and you know we don't go we don't do nepa um, process we have our own which is accepted by the federal government it's called the integrated resource management plan or irmp as we call it so that plan was developed back in the 90s and uh, adopted back then and so the bia recognizes that as our our management plan um, when we go through a step-by-step process for uh like a um timber sale comes to us and say we're going to be cutting 15 million board feet in like 7,000 acres of land and we identify what type of treatments would would be less detrimental we every resource is checker you know you've checked the box like all right we have to exclude all of the buffer areas for stream for water quality for old growth um you know, for owls, for eagles, for goshawks, for huckleberry ground, for root ground. So we remove all of these things. Um, maybe there's some elk wallows or fawning and calving ground. So we exclude all of those areas and you come up with a sale. So that's kind of the IRMP process. You have um, issues on there, like in best managed practice that standards are pretty much, that's the Bible, you follow that, right? There's set standards in there. And then BMPs or best management practices, those are more or less, hey, this is the best thing to do in the situation. So, and it's everything from each issue from fish, wildlife, um, water, water quality, soil, soil side, all of that's in, involved. Um, cultural resources, there's there needs to be um, section 106, even on our projects as well, as well as off reservation projects. We still follow that. So protection of cultural resources is really common on there. Um, and then um, our own regulations, that's more than like that's more and more and less our own regulations is IRMP. And on top of that, when we regulate for fishing, hunting, on a reservation and off the reservation, we use our own rules and regs. A lot of them are mirroring some of the states, um, like uh, hunting times. So we only hunt during the times when um, in the spring summer we don't usually hunt at all during the summer we're usually fishing right and so we set our own regulations based off of uh, a sustainable harvest so on our reservation we have maybe a three to four week season for deer and that includes archery and rifle so it's all limited on based off of a management objective that's in our irmp so maybe there's a a ratio like all right we need 20 bucks per 100 does and in order to meet that you can only set the season this long and give out this many permits so that's what we do 
And we do the same thing for off the reservation. We have a um, memorandum of understanding with ODFW on how we hunt and we meet with them and we say, all right, what's this area look like for hunting? How many deer are there? They'll tell us, right? It's like, oh, we flew and we understand. We did studies, how many deer. We're gonna be giving out this amount of tags to the general public and like, so we'll let them know like, all right, well, that's really good and all, but keep in mind, this is the areas that we wanna go to and harvest X amount of deer. So they incorporate that into their numbers and their trend in their counts. So they're like, all right, so they understand that the tribe will maybe come in and kill 30 deer out of a unit. In comparison, the state in one hunt alone, they'll kill 1,700 deer in one weekend, probably. <laughs> so that's in comparison. Like, uh, you know, we're, we, we have smaller hunters, but it's specific to areas and specific to the families. So we do work pretty closely with ODFW and you know, they, they try to manage the best they can, um, get a lot of, so like we have a um, update for the mule deer management plan coming up. And so they have to do consultation with us. And so um, those regulations are developed off those consultations on like, what's the carrying capacity for mule deer? What's their habitat? What's their numbers? What's sustainable? What can we do better? How can we assist those those uh, departments out? So, um, same thing with fishing. Fishing is the same way. We meet with multiple tribes and multiple states on fishing and fishing regulations on what's sustainable harvest. So. Are, are there things that you're that you're aware of or, or conversations going around that state agencies have certain issues with wildlife, whether it be management problems or population problems or calving rate issues that you on the reservation don't have? because you manage something differently or you have a different way of looking at something. And so it works differently on the reservation than it does on other land designations. Well, predator management comes to mind. Um, now we're allowed to hound and take lions in that fashion, that form of hunting. I know in the state it, it's been um, um, banned. Um, that wasn't banned by any agency. It was banned by the, the, um, you know, by the people that voted back years ago before our, before our time anyways. Um, I know that we can do that. And those type of um, predator removal has helped us in in watersheds in terms of mule deer management and as well as um, managing livestock, um, a little bit different. So we have like an exponential amount of horses here on the reservation. And we've we're able to remove horses at a high rate as well if there's an outlet for them. Um, so I know that the different agencies can't do that. You know, they kind of just house horses and they're not able to really move, remove them from the range. So we've been able to do that these past few years, and it's helped. It helped a lot for game management. Just put a little bit of relief on the winter range and some of those home ranges for deer and elk. And, but I know BLM has a really hard time with that. Um, they can't remove animals from areas. Um, or even like our timber sales, we can go into a forest and push the timber sale through to address the encroachment disease and uh, maybe some old growth that's just falling apart and we, it needs to be thinned out to, so that everything doesn't get burned up in the next burn. Well, I know in the, in the forest service, they can't do that. Um, we have dedicated areas that are called conditional use and you treat it like wilderness, yet we can go there and, 
and do some management to help out and regenerate because a lot of the wilderness areas holds our huckleberries so we could go in there do some thinnings and throw some fire in there and then huckleberries come back and then all the birds and bees and everything comes in pollinates and deer and elk utilize it so we're able to do stuff like that which i know the, the federal agencies like the forest service can't do that i mean a lot of areas are getting locked up wilderness is getting locked up and it's just growing and more like it's going to burn and you're going to lose all that habitat and a lot of species and you're going to have to start over it's just that successional stage of forest um it's we, we don't believe it's natural by doing that we think natural is going in there and you know because we evolved with this land you know, we used to burn, we used to cut, we used to do all that. Um, of course, we don't do that anymore, for sure. Um, but we'd like to see that more. If we can do it here on the reservation and showcase that, and I hope that the, the agencies understand that. So, so are you seeing are you seeing issues with wild horses and other native ungulates? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, to the point where they're chasing them off springs, off of cabin fawning ground. Yeah, because they're big. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <They're> big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 That's that's wild. I mean, it really seems like you, yourself, and and the members there have a, a different, obviously, a different way of looking at management, and almost in terms of regenerate. It almost seems like you're regener you're regeneratively farming or <laughs> keeping the land cycling in a way that's more natural, as opposed to, as you said, old growth. I mean, we had this in California probably what, what was it four or five years ago, we really had all those wildfires and all of this stuff was not managed correctly. Um, and it just was, it burned for so long. There was so much undergrowth and, it, and that's what happens when it's not managed to that point. I guess going to, uh, I'll, I'll bleed into the, to the wolf angle here a little bit. Cause we were talking about you, you mentioned predators a little bit. What is, I go into the background, I guess, of the, the tribe or the tribe's feelings on on wolves what it was if you have any knowledge from prior to you about what was the what was that coexistence like if there was any with with wolves in the area and what they mean uh, in some of the teachings or in some of the stories or anything that was passed down through generations Mm -hmm. so like a lot of you know our our creation stories legends evolve you know goes around the teachings of of our brothers, of our teachers, or is um, the wolves, lions, bears, and the coyotes, and eagle, right? So these are like your your top predators in our area. And believe it or not, there used to be grizzly bears here. There used to be wolves here. There's a lot of lions and a lot of black bears and coyotes across the whole landscape. So a lot of those teachings is they they helped out our people as we came into this area. Um, they showed us where the herds were for deer and pronghorn. Um, even far back as like um, when there used to be bison and mammoths and camels here, right? There's those teachings that like they, they used to follow them. And so the people used to follow them as well. Um, but there also was teachings of when you hunt them and when you don't hunt them. So, you know, there was a time and um, that understanding is there. Um, but a lot of it was around the, the fact that wolves were were to be protected. They were to be um, um, wolves, bears, lions, coyotes. They were to be um, understand as equals of our people. 
but also they were um, also the, you know, you, you hunted them during a certain time um, and they protected you. And so a lot of like, say, how dogs came to our tribe came from wolves, right? So they always thought, laugh around about res dogs, but before res dogs, it was, you know, you had some sort of dog in your, in your village. Well, that dog just didn't climb out of the ground from nowhere. <laughs> they came, they came from coyotes, you know. Yeah. It came from the that that species of canid, and so they were protectors. You know, if you go further up north to our cousins up in Alaska and Canada, they use those animals for for transport. We use them for protection. We use them for um, following us and helping us out. Uh, there's tribes to our northeast that eat them. There's tribes to our south that eat them. So you know, they're all part of that. Um, for my tribe itself, you know, we we really didn't, um, you know, a lot of wolves were were extirpated from us um, back early 1900s, and so for us, you know, my my grandparents can remember wolves, but it was a long time ago for them when they were kids. So you know, they they knew of them, and then they they speculated they were still here. You know, when my grandpa was born in 19 early 1920s and so he was like he speculated that there were still wolves in the area and you know there probably was um but then going into the the legend part of it in our tribe you know they they have these certain religious dances they they do the wolf dance they do the lion dance they still do the bear dance a lot of kids will do the bear dance um so these predators they were really respected for their strength and for their teachings and that belief is still carried on to this day. So a lot of people actually still, they hold the name wolf in their name somewhere. You know, it could be their Indian name or it could just be their given um, Christian name. It has some sort of part of their name. So I, I know we have at least like three or four wolf mans. That's their nickname in the community here. <laughs> so, you know, um, but yeah. So if we have a name, we have an Indian name for it. It's Khalish, right? That's the name for wolf. So that's how I grew up in the horn. I know the Khalish and the Spiliai. That's the wolf and the 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 wolf and the coyote. You know, big brother and little brother, right? <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so little brother is a little smarter. He survived the excavation. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going off the rails today with weird questions, but I have another <laughs> uh so whenever we talk to we've talked to a handful of folks from different tribes. You, you all seem to have something in common. I'm sure you have many differences and many things in common as well. But one thing you, you all have in common is you have this, you have this very sort of, it's, it's hard to describe. I guess it's a, it's a spiritually connected, some in touch tapped in feeling about, about hunting, about hunting animals. Um, so I want to ask a question that it may seem like a devil's advocate question, but I have my own answer to this question as well. Um, how can you, how does one respect something and then also want to kill it mm -hmm. from your perspective, from, from where you come from, from your culture? How do you, how does that thought kind of come full circle? Yeah, I, I totally understand that. So I, I will use the, the, like the mule deer. You know, it's, it is respected, the fact that it, you know, it provides substance. Um, every form of it is a part of our, um, our religion. Um, you know, everything is utilized from it when we hunt it. But we, we see that it lives a life of cycles. And 
how they live. I remember following a mule deer around for like five years and she, we captured her in the, in the springtime through a collar on her and she traveled from the reservation, our flats from the reservation up to, um, I don't know if you guys know where Frog Lake is up near Mount Hood uh, in our area, but it's like at the base of this mountain, which is like, I mean, that's like 60, 70 miles away, but it took the same path every year and you knew exactly the weekend it would take <laughs> off and it was amazing on like that respect for it and you knew like hey there's a couple of points here on its way up to this mountain like i bet you she dropped a fawn somewhere in here because she's hanging out a lot more and so yeah sure as heck we'd i'd go up there as a technician and i'd just like oh there's a fawn here with her and she would like run away and try to get me to follow her but there'd be a fawn laying there and i'd just leave him alone just let her do her thing and eventually, you know, she did this for multiple seasons and we knew like, all right, um, this collared animal is going to continue to do this. But it was showing us that we have deer that live on a reservation, we hunt, but it moves off the reservation. And during her time when she was up there, she was showing us where she went for the summer, summer range. And then she came back to her winter range and it was on the reservation. And then she bred down here. So you had rut happening. And, but then we also had collared bucks. You had other collared does and they were shooting off these other areas, but they all had these family lines. So she did that same travel, her doe, her fawn, that was a doe did that eventually when grew up and was small. So they all followed these same paths. And that was, I could really respect that because it's just like us as humans. We, you know, we have our habits. We are creatures of habit. We travel these different areas and that's how our people were too. We went to our summer range to go pick huckleberries or fish or, you know, winter ground. Um, and then to the hunting part of it, um, you know, we respected it so much, but at the same time, we know it, it provided not only nutrition for us, proteins for us, um, but also that we respected enough that we used its hide so they would make buckskin out of it. Um, they would use the tools from it to make that buckskin. So everything you need to make a buckskin clothes is on that deer. The ribs would be used to scrape the hide, the brains there to tan it and cure it. I mean, teeth are on there. All that stuff's there just for you to make clothing. So. And then even like the hooves, you can utilize those for jewelry, for trading, um, you know, the teeth, uh, you know, in bigger surveys, they have ivory in them. So that's a, like for trade, for um, currency. So everything was provided to us and that was provided by the creator for us. And so we had to respect that. So we took care of it. And then so what actually when you harvest your first animal, there's called this first kill ceremony and you you don't consume it you give it away to an elder or someone that can't hunt for themselves. And then everything that you use on that hunt, whether using a bow or a rifle or a knife, whatever, you gave that away to a, to a um, younger hunter so that they have that, so they can utilize and recycle it. And then you give your rifle away to an older hunter because they taught you, they taught you that way to hunt, right? So it could be your uncle, it could be your dad, your older brother. Wow. You give it away and then in return, they give you a rifle that they had. <laughs> right. So it was pretty, it's this wow. exchange that happens. And so, and all of this is around the, the deer. And so Amazing. then leading up to your death, 
So when you pass on, you're wrapped in buckskin, in the white buckskin. And that we're always told that's how you're met to the other side. You know, this is just one life. The next life will be, they'll greet you because you're covered in that buckskin. And so that deer will take care of you here and then it'll take care of you in the next life. So that was an understanding I was raised with. And that's, I, I still really care for that and cherish it and understand it. This gives me more of a sense of, hey, we are at balance yeah. here. You know, we're not above them or below. We're, we're all in the same line. We should live that yeah. way. I hope that answers your question. Or just- Yeah, totally. Yeah. Is totally, it the yeah, same, beautiful. Austin, is it the same with predators? Like you were saying before, bears and coyotes and wolves and, and eagles, all that's, is it roughly the same or are there just little different variations for each? Yeah, animal? it's very the same. Like they'll do bear dance, lion dance, and the wolf dance. They're, they're joycing for that animal, given its life and the courage, like a kid will get a bear name. <laughs> <laughs> walking around a bear dance so he had to do a bear dance showing strength or wisdom or whatever you know it was pretty neat i so cool. was growing up around i thought ah, that's really cool and then i tell my buddies they're like they'd laugh about it they're like i've never heard that before like, well these are old teachings that we were you know they, they still exist and i'm sure every culture had their own teachings you know like right. we're, we're just because we're the remnants of a you know here in america you know, I'm sure like your tribe you come from, where your family comes from, they've had that. It's just yeah. that disconnect lost, yeah. happened, right? Yeah. 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 There's no passing down of that for the most part uh, for certain cultures, I guess, or certain family members. What d- Describe, I guess, what what that all, uh, again, just hopping back into the wolf thing for, for a minute. What What is it, what did it mean, I guess, when you guys were, you had seen that wolves were starting to infiltrate back. I know you were you were talking mostly in, in your your discussion, which, by the way, we'll have in the description of, of the podcast. So I keep referencing this. So everybody who's listening will be able to watch it. But you spoke about, I, I think, the White River Pack, OR93. What, what was, I guess, just the cultural and, and, to a degree, scientific meanings for a lot of this for not only the tribe but also what you were trying to do in terms of understanding wolves trying to infiltrate back, coming back into the, their native range and hopefully trying to complete, you know, these circles with, you know, bears, hopefully trying to infiltrate back coyotes, like you said, never really left to a degree. Um, but what was, what were the significances of those sightings for, for that scientific information and then culturally for wolves to be back in the reservation or in, even in and around the reservation where they are currently. Yeah. So a lot of the, the management we do here, it depends on, you know, population habitat, if it's doing great. And when wolves start coming back into the picture in Oregon, um, you know, when that one wolf swam the Snake River and it would start making its way west into our area, you know, we, everyone knew about it. It was like, Oh, there's a wolf coming in. Um, on our reservation, we have a lot of livestock owners, a lot of um, horse and cattle owners, right? Um, but then we also have a lot of avid hunters. And so some of them were worried. Some of them were um, thinking like, oh, these wolves are going to come over and take over the area and push these animals around. But lo and behold, these wolves, wolves just kind of came through the res and passed through and they headed south. So like um, Aura 7, he headed south. He didn't 
set up shop here. He obviously passed through the reservation. So like we could look at the GPS points and see. And so that kind of gave us an idea like, all right, well, a lot of times when we'll set up shop somewhere, it's in a place where they have good, you know, um, good prey base for them to, to live, to pair up, to develop their territory. And so like if they're indicating like, all right, they're not setting up on the res, we need to do something about it. So I'm thinking like early 2000s, right? And so in my career at that point, I was thinking like, all right, well, I know we're doing a lot of um, forest management, rangeland management, and at the same time, we're doing horse removals and um, livestock owners are starting to get more serious about keeping their cattle in a home base, rotating pastures. So, and then a lot of people were selling out, selling their cattle because, you know, there's a lot more, um, I guess, they, getting out of that lifestyle. It's a transition of, you know, we used to be farmers and uh, we're from fishermen, hunters to farmers and livestock owners. And now like we have a casino and then we have timber sales. So we don't need to make so much money and jobs change. People start working um, desk jobs and they, so kids don't want to be ranchers and farmers. So the, the um, grandma and grandpa get rid of their animals. So, and the kids don't want to do it. Their parents don't want to do it. So realizing that that's, that's just a transition that was happening here. And so it meant less um, cattle to worry about, but there still was remnants of cattle owners still here. I mean, my family owns cattle, run cattle, run horses, um, and then the management. So as we got through, I guess I'm going into the timeline of when wolves started arriving here. Um, <clears throat> wolves started coming here, and then pretty soon they started hanging out here, not as packs, but just you know they they they're hitting these little say it was a roadkill or a horse died or a cow died, well, they're hitting the bone piles and they're getting sightings of them. So I remember back in like, I think it was like 2010 or 2012, I got a call about um, where a dead horse was over, over the spring. And they said, oh, I seen a wolf up here and it was on this pile of bones. And I'm like, a wolf, you sure? And they're like, yeah. So I get up there and yeah, we see some tracks and they're a lot bigger than a dog, a lot bigger than a coyote. So we had nothing to confirm that it was wolf or just a wild dog. And the the person giving the report was fairly reliable, but you know, we've had that happen before in the community. People say, oh, it's a wolf, it's someone's <laughs> giant hustle. Right. <laughs> right. So <laughs> all of that adding up. And eventually we started doing these timber sales and we're removing a lot of vegetation elk start coming in these areas and the elk populations start exploding and then the horse populations are decreasing because we're moving them and selling horses getting them off the reservation rotating areas and so it started doing this whole fashion where deer and elk populations getting up there and lo and behold in you know 2013 through 2018 really that population grew to the point where we had really good bull ratios and buck ratios um, that were beyond our our management objectives. So we're like, I know we did classification and, and flights in 2016, a really good flight, good snow year, pushed a lot of animals out of the mountains. So we classify a bunch of elk and deer and we're like, oh yeah, look like the ratios were 29 bulls per 100 cows. That was really good ratios. That's a lot of bulls. That's That sounds good. I'm like, that's good for the hunt season. And the same thing with the deer. It's well over 20 deer are per 100 um does and then the the calving and the fawn ratios were up too so we're like oh we're doing really good and 
I think what we're doing with all these rotation of timber sale, rotation of burning, rotation of removing animals helped out. And then lo and behold, of course, guess who shows up? I mean, we we get one of our foresters calls me up and sends me a picture. <laughs> look like a blurry picture of two animals. Those look like giant animals. <laughs> yeah. So they're wolves. Wow. Went out confirmed. Um, started setting up trail cameras and then we got this blurry picture of a look like a wolf um and so we started thinking like all right well we need to start talking to some experts about wolves and wolf management so that's where um the wildlife services got involved so they're a trust resource we lean on and tell them like hey you know what who's the experts on this and so they sent a guy out that he works the whole region he works pretty much all of oregon he came out and he's an older gentleman very knowledgeable he knew how to track, knew how to call for wolves. So I just hung out with him for multiple times. Showed me how to trap and showed me how to do everything. And, you know, his name was John Stephenson. And he he did a lot of uh, work here in Oregon with wolves on, on the Rogue and Cascades and traveled around. And he did a lot of ESA, right? ESA listed species from bull trout, wolves and owls, whatnot. So, um, but he came to our res, helped us out. And so he helped us out. We captured a couple of wolves here. Um, uh, but during that time, when we first identified them, it was just like, all right, there's something going on in this area. It's pretty isolated, post-timber sale, post-burn, elk show up. I mean, it was like pretty pretty neat because you could drive out there and not see anybody. But you could run the roads and find giant scat big old tracks on all these roads and like man there's something out here living you know that really helped us out like oh all right there's something out here and so we end up getting um i was out looking for wolf tracks and scat and i kind of narrowed it down from this you know 10 miles square all the way down to a mile square unit so i was like right, they have to be in this area it's summertime there's only water here and there if there's wolves in this area they have to be here so me and a youth worker, one of my um, youth techs, like when I started, came out with me. And we see all these paw tracks down this trail. So I jump out. We start, I tell him, hey, let's go. It's moving on this trail. And he's like, all right. All these tracks, all these cameras we've been putting out all summer. He still hasn't seen a wolf. So, you know, it's a high school kid. And we're walking up. Then I look up. And then you see this brown thing just walking. And then it dashes into these trees and disappears. And it was the size of a coyote. And the kid was like looking at me and I was like, yeah, that looked like a wolf. He's like, that thing was small. I, I think that's a pup. So me, me and me, I ran over there and I threw up a camera in this little area. Like kind of like, almost looked like an elk wallow, but it's all brushy. You could tell that there's a lot of activity in there. So I threw up a camera. Got the heck out of there. Didn't even lock it up. I just threw it up and just left it and set it. And I told the guy, like, oh, well, you seen potentially a wolf pup your last day at work here. You're going back to school next week. Let's see if we get anything. And he was excited. So we let a week go by. So I went out there. I took the forest manager with me. I said, hey, can you come help me out? I'm going to check this camera. And so we sneak in there, evening time. And I take the card out, switch the card in, boogie back, and I throw it in my laptop. And lo and behold, there's a, there's a, there's look like that one of the alphas and three pups running around this camera. 
So that was our first time we're like, oh, shoot. So we do have wolves here and they're breeding. And so they're like, man, that was really awesome. All right. Wow. So that was our first indicator of a breeding pack. And that was a White River pack. So um, when about was that, that you started to recognize that there actually, there's a, there are wolves here and it's like a thing we need to pay attention to? That was about 2013 through 2016. And then 2018 is when we really identified that they were like a breeding pair. Because they were always moving up and down. I just didn't have the resources. I was working on timber sales, hunting regulations, um, law enforcement stuff. And so, like, I really try to spend most of my time doing wolf stuff. But I really, I mean, I try to do as much as I could. Um, being that, that we had an active timber sale, post sale and harvest and monitoring, that was part of it. I was like, all right, what's utilizing this post harvest? Um, so... That year, um, and then 2018, I we began going out again looking for them because that was actually just a rendezvous site. It wasn't an actual den or anything. So that's where they just went and hung out next to water. And so the following year, um, I really wanted to find that den. I wanted to know where they're moving from. And so I started looking for scat, driving roads, hiking around. And um, really what I started doing is just strategically placing cameras um, where I wanted to see direction of travel. So I started getting direction of travel and they're carrying stuff, right? So they're carrying something dead. <laughs> uh, right. Skunks, turkeys, rabbits, everything, horse legs. Yeah. There's crazies there. <laughs> yeah. They're taking foals down. So it was neat. It was like, all right, they're going this direction. So I'm going to go that way and go figure out what they're doing. So I was driving on the road one day and I smelled something god awful stink. And most people, you know, would be like, oh, something's dead. Let's get out of here. Me, I just like, holy crap, slam on the brakes. I want to find where that dead thing's at. So I get out, start wandering around, sniff my nose in the air, like, all right, it's so over here. There's giant log piles throughout this whole unit. You know, they cut a lot of incense, a lot of cedar, and they can't market cedar, so they'll just leave it. I and mean, of course, cedar doesn't rot very fast and so it stays there for years. So there's, you have like dozens of, of these cedar piles. So I walked over to the cedar pile and I looked down and there's like scat laying everywhere. And there's legs from, from an ungulate. There's hooves laying there like, oh, shoot, something's... And I, my thought at first was like, well, maybe this is a coyote was chewing around on the leg and left it here. But I was looking at the scat and I was like, oh, there's a lot of it. And as I'm standing there on this log deck, I look down and the, there's this little brown thing, grayish thing, start moving inside the deck. I'm like, oh, crap. Oh, no. Something alive down there. <laughs> so I wanted to run back and grab my camera, my Canon, my DSLR. And as I do that, I just see this thing, corner of my eye, my peripheral, run out from underneath the log deck, and it's a, it's a darn wolf. Wow. Mama wolf running out, and she's mad. She's, like, yipping and growling and oh, barking no. at me, howling. <laughs> and she was, like, feet away from me. <laughs> so I'm like, what do I do? Continue. So I go back, grab the camera on the truck, my heart's pounding you know i've been in combat zone <laughs> i'm just like trying to get my nerves I'm just like, this is exciting and that wolf is howling howling and yipping at me and howling and then pretty soon 
down the hill, I hear more howling. So it must have been the pups from last year that are a little bit older now. They're going to start howling. But they're in the trees. And this log deck's kind of in a little meadow. Not really a big meadow, a little bit of meadow in the shade. And then the, pretty soon the log deck starts howling. Little tiny pups, they all start howling. So everything's howling around me. And the whole time that thing's showing its teeth at me. And I was pretty excited. I tried to get a video of her. Um, she went running around me. They started kind of circling me. So I was like, oh, shoot, I better I better just get out of here. So I same deal. I ran over, grabbed the camera, set it up, threw it around the big old pumpkin tree closest to the log deck. And the whole time, Mama's like, you know, I'm between the tree, the log deck, and Mama's right here. So I'm in between their pups. So I was thinking, like, well, if she was going to bite me, attack me, I'd be... It already would have happened, so I'm pretty sure she's just trying to get me to get out of there, letting them know, you know, they're here. So they're all howling. Long dick's howling. I got the camera up. Pretty sure it's all set. Boom, boom, boom. All right, jump, run back to the truck, jump in there and get, get out of there. And immediately start getting a hold of the state wolf coordinator, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, letting them know. I'm pretty sure I found the, the den. There's pups in there, size of the little guys. And, and yeah, so I ended up coming back um, a couple weeks later and positively ID'd that, yeah, there was pups. You could see them running around on my camera. Wow. Um, so they stayed there. Started counting them all. <laughs> it was really cool. They wow. stayed there after you had you had showed. They still, they didn't take off. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I wasn't there long. I, I was there minutes. Wow. Wow. <laughs> But, but it felt like an eternity, yeah. right? With, oh, I bet, yeah. Wow. <laughs> and they, yeah, there there was uh, six pups in that litter that year. Thousands of pictures. And finally, I got a, the only shot with all six in there was a little video of them all howling. So mama or dad or siblings are coming back in the middle of the night and they're howling in the background. And then all the pups start howling. <laughs> so it, it, I shared it. I think it was um, it was shared on the news, and U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service shared that as well. And it's like, oh yeah, the White River Pack, and you know, the first pack to be you know found in the Cascades in this area, Central Oregon. So yeah, it was it was exciting um, coming face to face with the wolf, and you know, I never heard of wolf attacks uh, i didn't really fear for my life but i was excited i i had i didn't think that that the alpha female was going to attack me i didn't think the the sub adults down the hill coming towards me were going to attack me or anything i just felt like they, they wanted to know i was there and i'm pretty darn sure they had my scent already so they kind of knew i was in the area because i spent a lot of time all summer up in that area and so they figure oh he finally found us <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was first real confirmed den we found. They just want to say, "Hey, Austin." That's all it was. Just a hello. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, that is an incredible story, man. That is a, that's unreal. I mean, where does where do wolves? What's the future like for wolves on on the reservation in those areas? Where is where do you think they're going to go? Are they repopulating well? I know Colorado just took. 10 i don't know if i don't believe they took any off the the reservation or around the reservation but what's the populations looking like where does sort of the future land for for any of those packs that are there well 
since since we found the White River pack, there's these other packs that have been kind of showing up on a reservation. Now I'm telling you there's there's 643,000 acres of um, a mixture of scrub oak, rangeland, up to pine forests and to mixed conifers and subalpine. So you have a great diversity of habitat and you have a diversity of um, different cervids that use that habitat. And so we end up getting, um, so White River Pack is, sounds like the last time I was out on that pack, you know, I'm pretty sure that Alpha, he had, he, he was gone. So the male, well, he's pretty old. I think the first time we seen him was 2013, um, wandering and paired up with this other, this female, and they've had multiple layers, but I think in um, 2020, um, after we collared Aura 93, that pack had um, lost the breeding male. And so it kind of created a different dynamic there. So, and then a lot of pups took off, Aura 93 took off. <clears throat> and then, um, so that pack kind of went down, dwindled down at the strongest it was that I remember was 12 wolves at one time. And then now they dwindled down to, I think they're at like four now. Um, I think they've they identified a new breeding breeding pair there. Probably the pups um, identify the breeding pair with that from or from the different um, the alpha there. And then the, we put on a couple of collars there. Uh, they didn't last very long in the area. They were sub adults, so they juveniles. They just took off, and they were always a male. So it's like lo and behold, the male's interested, and it's going to step in that trap, right? <clears throat> so White River Pack, I think they're still there. And then now we have another pack we're calling the Warm Springs pack. There's black wolves in that pack though. So we counted up to seven, eight, I think is what we reported this for the census this year was, I think it was solid seven. I was, I think we're dead at seven, but there's no collared wolves in that pack. It was only based off the observation and um, cameras and routine surveys we've had, track surveys to what we've caught on camera. Um, them moving through and they're pretty solid on their seven wolves there and then to the south we have the metolius pack so they're on the um, billy chinook and our area so they they use both both areas sounds like just talking with odfw and i'm not sure on the solid numbers there but so you ultimately have three different packs that we know of on the reservation and um you know, wolf management on a res, we're going to treat them just like any other listed species, or even if they're on, they're not listed, you know, we'll manage them like a predator, like we always do. So if they um, get out of hands, they start um, depredating on livestock, we have to control measures and, um, you know, we're different using non-lethal measures is the primary right now. And then we've also have funding allocated for um, compensation if the livestock was taken from wolves. We've had confirmed depredations here, um, and we haven't done payouts yet, just because you know some were we didn't have the funding then, but now we do. We have a wolf committee that um, meets on depredations, and so if there is a depredation that happened, we'll have the committee review it and do allocation. And also, if people put in for projects, like say they have a pasture and they want flagery or they want fox lights or they want. Um, horns out or, you know, um, hot wire out to keep their animals in and keep wolves out, stuff like that. We, we can assist them with that. So the, all those resources are here. Um, and in terms of wolves and 
their where they move into how they're how they're um interacting with the people a lot of times people see wolves and they're just so excited about seeing them um, and they seem to leave them alone that's pretty common with a trial member of course you still have the other side of it they want to shoot everything and they don't want them here um and a lot of it is just educating understanding like there is a place for them here on the reservation um i think it's beneficial because it did it did they do assist us with uh, ungulates, pushing them in different areas. And you used to have elkers that would just hang out in one area. Now they're kind of dispersing using different habitats. That in terms with um, the management goals is like to bring back some of those listed species or those, those predators that were here, because we know they're an apex predator. But we're also seeing that they're taking um, undesirable animals. So we have horses here. Um, they're taking horses, they're hunting, um, primarily in the springtime when they're dropping foals. Uh, we've we've documented that they're actually killing um, their foals and feeding their pups. <laughs> so, so yeah, so Aura 93, the one that took off down to California, he he ate a lot of horse. That's probably where he ran so far. Really? Uh, <laughs> but know. now that are, are packs taking down adult horses or, or just you're not re- witnessing that? We haven't witnessed that, but I can tell you we have. We also have a wild dog problem <clears throat> yep. here. Yeah, we've actually witnessed um, and documented wild dogs taking down adult horses. An adult horse, Jeez. that's yeah. insane. Yep. So you could only think that maybe the wolves are doing the same thing. Um, wild dogs are those are tough. It's tough critters too. Yeah, they're yeah. We actually have to take care of them because they're 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 just like the wild horses here. You know. They're, get overpopulated and it's just, a lot of it is the horse the dogs there's no like real codes here like leash laws all that stuff it's a reservation so dogs run wild and they have really i have a bunch of res dogs and they have their own personality and um unfortunately sometimes they pack up and take off into the into the woods and they do that so we have to take care of them that fashion we work a lot with fence for fido and different other you know um Nonprofits, they come and help us out with dogs and dog management. That is wild. So, you you were about to mention it there. Are, are there any other things you noticed about? Because you know you had for almost a hundred years, you didn't have wolves, but you but you had ungulates, elk, elk, and mule deer, and these things. And so, they're multiple generations unfamiliar with what it's like to be on a landscape with with a predator that hunts in a pack which is obviously very different than a predator that hunts in by itself like a mountain lion or something yeah. i mean pack predators yeah. are a totally different thing um so other than the the thing that you'd anticipate which is that their their predators are doing what they do which is moving herds around to places they don't they don't normally go um i mean what are there have there been any other meaningful effects to ungulate populations that have caused you any kind of concern or doing what some folks might say called decimating populations? Are they disrupting elk to the point where they're hanging out more in towns than they are in the wilderness? Things that people are are afraid of, particularly in places where there are no wolves now, but there will be. We've, we're starting to see some of that. Um, wolves being pushed out of the upper plateau areas down into agriculture land. 
So we're seeing more of that and that causes damage to our ag fields. So we have 400 plus acres of agriculture, alfalfa, um, feed hay and whatnot. So there's a, um, ever since the White River Pack expanded its um, territory, they've been pushing these elk herds and we've been documenting them too. Like they're, um, you know, elk are being pushed out of those foothills yeah. into the agriculture. Yeah. And then there, some of them become residential and then now we have hunters hunting some of the ag lands and we restrict that. So any cultivated or farmed lands, we don't allow hunting on, on the reservation. Yeah. Um, so then people get in trouble because of it, because they're out there shooting elk off of some, off of our pivots. And you know, that, that, that can be, um, that could really impact us because we're trying to farm for livestock feeding and yeah, we've got that there driving around and poaching. So <laughs> right. that becomes conflict. And then the elk themselves, they'll damage the crop. They'll hang out on alfalfa. And if you have like, say, 150 to 500 head of elk on uh, some acres of alfalfa there, they're going to do some damage, right? Uh, regardless if they're snipping it off or how they eat compared to a horse or a, or a cow. So that happens. Mm. Um, I mean, the oh, horses, the horse herds as well, They're some of them are getting pushed up in the areas as well where they they're hard to catch and they're a lot more skittish. So those unmanaged horses, so families can't go up and ride in areas. And then the livestock as well, they're getting kind of pushed out of areas just because there's competition with everything's moving around. So that was initially the issue, but now I think it's kind of settling down to the point where, you know, their wolves are here. They've been here for a while now, five plus years or more with an established breeding pair. Um, and you know we we've already dealt with these conflicts. We had what um, guard dogs that are being attacked in rural homes and killed. So that's happened before. Um, and some of those guard dogs are probably cattle cattle dogs, right? So, um, but our reaction to that is creating a way to assist livestock owners, and that's bringing out um, work dogs. So those wolf dogs will come out and whatever it's a great Pyrenees or beach or whatever it is we could bring out and help out the tribal member and like hey you know we have some funding to purchase a dog or, or breed it we have some dogs for your herd to help you out um you know they're not gonna always protect you but there'll be good guard dogs for your critters so that that has helped out and changed you know so there's there's growing pains here for sure and part of the wolf management and the with the ungulates it's you know my thing is like well our numbers are up for animals and that's really cool right they're not killing everything you know we'll we'll find that you know part of it the interesting part with the reservation is you have they have supplemental food here so if the ungulate population does drop down like the deer get wiped out by disease harsh winter right. or you know they switch. You still have a livestock here that's uh, yeah. basically wild as well. But that can be bad as well because that population will stay at a level because like, oh, usually with the predator-prey dynamic, you know, you always think about the snowshoe hare and the lynx, right? How they go through that climatic changes. You think that the wolves and the lions and the bears will do the same thing here, but it's it's like they just stay at a stable population now. You can't exactly get your deer and elk population to its carrying capacity, <clears throat> um, but it's not there yet. And a lot of that's due to 
um, having horses on our landscape, I believe. Wow. Um, you know, wow. So until we do that, then we can get back to a better, yeah. better populations. That's desirable. Yeah. <laughs> desirable. Yeah. Oof. Jeez. So try. So Wild. so the tribe doesn't consider horses to be native. I mean, because I mean, again, the, sometimes the argument the argument is that horses were much smaller. They were kind of a different subspecies of what these horses are. They left, they came back. Now they're enormous. It's a different challenge for, for, for other in quotations, native species, but you don't consider them to be a, 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 a native species in a true sense. Yeah. Well, I guess it depends on what family you right. talk to. So like you go down to the river, you talk to those river people. They're like, Oh, we never had horses. But then you go to the plateau tribes the Columbia Plateau tribes, like my mother's side, they could say that they had horses forever. I mean, they traded and stole a lot of horses from the, the Nemapus or the Nesbers tribes, but we were really close families ties with all those tribes. Um, they said they had them forever, but yeah, I mean, he's, you know, there's certain size. I, I categorize them as a feral unmanaged horse because a lot of the breeds that we have here were during the the um, relocation phase. So the BIA and federal government gave us a bunch of livestock um, to manage and to become farmers. And so they, a lot of draft stock for pulling plows, pulling wagons, were bred into these herds. And then um, then you had the Indian ponies, which were the, the, the mixed paints, the Appaloosas were bred with those draft stock. And now you have this hardy animal that's just going to survive right. on this harsh landscape. Wow, yeah, so, yeah, right. Eat roughage yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you could see some really healthy horses out here living off of cheatgrass and goose eggs. I, I know. And birds. It, it's mind-blowing because I live on a horse ranch and I look at like some some horses that just, you know, folks own around here. And I'm like, what's going on with these horses, man? They always have an issue. But if you drive by a reservation, there's thousands of healthy looking horses eating. I don't <laughs> eating. I have no idea what they're eating, <laughs> you know, and the ho- yeah. horses, yeah. horses in a barn around here are getting vitamins, supplements. And they always, there's always an issue, but <laughs> these, yeah. this horse breed that lives on a, on reservations, I don't know what the heck they're even eating, but they're just, they look great. <laughs> Most of them. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. It's crazy genetics. They yeah. Have. It's, it's amazing. Yeah. Wow. Oh my God. It's wild. I mean, Austin, this has been, uh, incredibly informative, man. I mean, this is like, you've, you've run the gamut with us and thanks for taking some of our our questions that were a little bit off, you know, off the beaten path. But I mean, you just really, really fascinating how yourself, uh, and all the, on all the tribe and all the tribal members and everybody who's working the land and making sure to keep it as healthy as possible. It's really, really incredible. I mean, anybody who's, Listening to this, uh, definitely, you know, watch, uh, like I said, we'll have Austin's talk uh, in the description so you guys can take a look at that. But uh, my last question for you, Austin, to close this out is when you hear the word wolf, what's the thing that comes to your mind? When I hear the word wolf, you know, I I hear is um, a respectful, you know, well, alpha male, that's what I hear on the table. Alpha male, right? That that dominant, that dominant um, male who's kind of sits the tempo, who's the the apex, the the top dog. He's kind of he leads the pack, right? He's the 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 foundation of your pack. And I 
when I served in the Marine Corps, I joined a, a platoon and then um, our call sign was Alpha Male. And that was uh, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, um, Surveillance Target Acquisition Platoon was Alpha Male. And I was like, oh, that's a cool call sign. And it was, it was based off of a wolf. So, you know, that's, that's really cool. Um, then coming home and working with wolves. So. <laughs> you're, you're living it. And uh, it's just, again, really, again, awesome to meet you, first of all. And then secondly, just to, you have such an absolute wealth of knowledge to impart, I think, on anybody who's looking for it. So thank you for, for everything you did. Like I said, serving, serving our country for one and two, just all the stuff you're doing for the wildlands out there up in Oregon on the reservation. Really. Thank you so much for talking to Steve and I It was really, really, really awesome. Yeah. Thank you. No, thank you guys for having me. It's glad to share and you know, I opened our policy here. So I always get people coming in asking questions. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I love it. I love it. I, I think, of course, absolutely. Uh, just hang tight one second while we sign off. Uh, how's to y'all out there? And we'll be with you next time. Bye, everybody. Looking for more information about Wolf Connection or the podcast? Please visit our website at wolfconnection.org where you can donate, sponsor a wolf, or become a volunteer. <laughs>